you should probably save that $3,000 and maybe look at doing some networking and reaching out to other lawyers and seeing if they can throw you some of their overflow and maybe take that 3000 to build a website and, you know, maybe you start publishing some of your own content for now, you know, because if the budget in LA is going to require you to spend thirty dollars or $50,000 a month, we just don't want to mismanage expectations. And that's how a lot of SEOs get bad names is they just mismanage expectations. They overpromise, underdeliver, and, you know, just kind of creates a mess for other marketers, you know, it gives us all a bad reputation. Hi, and welcome to the Optimize Podcast. My name is Nate Matherson, and I'm your host. On this weekly podcast, we sit down with some of the smartest minds in content marketing and SEO. Our goal is to give you perspective and insights on what's moving the needle in organic search. Today, I'm thrilled to sit down with Jason Hennessy. Jason has been in the industry for a number of years, over 20 actually, and today he's the CEO of Hennessy Digital. In our episode today, Jason and I chat about a category of organic search that I just don't know that much about that being the legal SEO space. And I'm excited to learn more. We also chat about how search is changing, algorithm updates, building an agency, and a heck of a lot more. This week's episode of the Optimize Podcast is brought to you by Positional. My name's Nate, and I'm one of the co-founders of Positional. We've been working on Positional for about 10 months, and we've built a handful of what I think are pretty awesome tools, including we've launched Content Analytics. Content Analytics is kind of like a heat mapping tool, but for a content marketing and SEO team. We provide really granular insights into where users are dropping off within your pages. And we've actually just launched a couple of new capabilities too. We've launched click mapping and click tracking to give you better insights into where your users are clicking and converting. And we've also launched a more general heat mapping view too, alongside our read maps. We'd love for you to check out our entire tool set at positional.com. Jason, thank you so much for coming on the Optimized Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be here today. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, so the first question I ask all of our guests is, how did you get into the world of content marketing and SEO? So this dates back to uh, like early 2000s. I was going to college at UNLV. I had just gotten out of the United States Air Force and I was uh, studying for the LSAT. Um, I was going to go to law school and my side hustle was uh, I was like a DJ, like I was DJing weddings and parties on the weekends. And so I had an idea to build a website where brides that were coming to Las Vegas could plan their wedding. And so I paid a developer. He developed the website in a couple months. But after three months after the site launched, there was no traffic coming to it. And so I'm like, I think there's a problem here. And so I reached out to the developer and he's like, oh, that's called like SEO. I don't know how to do that. And so uh, I'm like, well, I guess I have to learn this stuff myself. And so I started to read books about SEO, you know, because it was a need. I had to kind of bring traffic to this website that I just developed. And then uh, I started to become passionate about it. I started to get some results. And then as they say, the rest is history. That was just my passion. And so instead of going to law school, I just kind of became an entrepreneur, built up a, a wedding directory business. And then I'm sure we'll talk about how I transitioned into the legal world, but that's kind of how I got started in this industry. Well, thank you for your service. And 
I am so curious, what was the early 2000s like in SEO? Like I've been in this industry for about 10 years and we hear a lot about like eat and, you know, user experience metrics and fantastic content. Were like any of those things important in like the early 2000s? Like what was search like? Yeah, you know, I think I think the fundamentals were, you know, very very similar to how they are now, right? You know, good content. But back in those days like you know, it really was like, what is the secret this month? Like, what's the the thing that you can do to expose the Google algorithm, right? And so back in those days, there was a thing where people were just writing content with keyword density, right? So like putting in keywords, making sure it's in the first sentence and the third sentence and making sure it's bold in the second paragraph. And you know, back in those days, the web didn't read very well because the algorithm was built around like keyword density, right? And then there was things like you had meta keyword tags that people were basically kind of just putting meta keyword tags into it and spamming it. But the biggest thing was links really kind of superseded everything back then. You know, like, so you can have a website that is like a flash website, right? Where Google really can't even read the code. And if you've got strong enough links coming to it, like Google will actually index it. And then the third thing I'd say is like, people were just really spamming uh, with links and it was very effective. Going into like Coca-Cola blogs and like commenting and using like a keyword in the comments so that it links back and you know that stuff just worked and so you've seen all this spam and then you know the panda update came and the penguin update came and that's when seo started to get harder i'm happy where it is now and i can share so many other stories but um you know those were some of the principles that were working back in those days so you mentioned seo has gotten harder what's harder about seo today than it was maybe back then you know i i would say uh a you know good content really prevails. And the second thing is like, you know, a lot of the spammy tactics that used to work will probably get websites penalized these days, right? So, um, you know, Google is looking at real websites kind of doing real things um, like user experience. That really wasn't a thing back in the day. So now Google is kind of monitoring how users are engaging with the content. Are they staying on the page? How long are they staying on the page before they go back, right? And so, you know, that's the stuff that really makes people have to put out like really good content. You know, it's not easy for spammers to just kind of come in and just kind of manipulate search anymore. Um, you still see some of that, you know, and don't get me wrong. Like there's some categories where you still see a lot of that. Like, you know, when you look at like online casinos and things like that, that's a whole different world that Google has a whole separate kind of like algorithm for that still, because it's a whole world of spammers still. In the legal space, uh, you know, you don't see a lot of like spammers coming in and just kind of uh, ex exposing Google. So. so I do want to talk about the legal space and I have spent no time in the legal SEO space. And I want to ask you the question that you addressed uh, about two minutes ago, how did you transition from like building websites in like the Las Vegas wedding space into like building an agency for largely like lawyers and in the legal space? I didn't want to raise my kids in Vegas. So we moved to Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and so I was living in Atlanta at the time I had sold my wedding directory website. Um, and I was just kind of doing some affiliate marketing. I was working with a guy named Brad Fallon. He had a company called StomperNet. And so they had asked Brad, uh, when I say they, it was like a mastermind of DUI lawyers that were meeting in Atlanta at some lawyer's house. There was 50 lawyers. And so Brad uh, 
asked me is like, Hey, I'm not going to be able to make this, you know, would you be able to kind of come and speak about like how lawyers can leverage SEO? And so I'm like, yeah. So he gave me like 24 hours notice and I put together a presentation. I knew nothing about legal marketing. Um, and so at the time I got up on stage and I was able to show how I was able to rank on Google for keywords like wedding favors. I was also doing SEO, uh, for, uh, online poker. And so I basically just got on stage and I showed them the strategies that I used to rank on Google for wedding favors nationally and, and online poker. And then after about 45 minutes of me kind of just like sharing, you know, teaching them like just exactly what I did, I'm like, there's really no difference in what I'm doing here. You're just going after different keywords. And from that, I had about seven lawyers that came up to me afterwards and said, do you do consulting? Um, you know, I'm paying my SEO company like $5,000 a month and they're not doing any of this stuff. Like, you know, do you do like, you know, work with uh, lawyers? And I'm like, not really, but give me a business card. And so I took about seven or 10 business cards and and that was kind of the genesis of my first agency. You know, from there, we started to build some case studies. We started to get referrals from these lawyers to other lawyers. And then uh, next thing you know, we're at conferences. And, you know, many, many years later, you know, then I'm writing books and the subject matter expert. And, you know, so you just kind of pay your dues over time and you, you build your network, I guess. And lawyers seem like a great target market. Like they have, I would assume, like relatively good budgets and like high LTV maybe or like high value customers coming to them when you're thinking about like a DUI lawyer or a personal injury lawyer. Yep. And so it makes a ton of sense that like, you know, SEO and organic search generally could be a really valuable channel for them. And this question is intentionally broad, but I'll preface it by saying I've spent most of my career doing like what I would describe as like national SEO, like ranking for keywords across the US. I guess my question is what makes legal SEO different than like regular or traditional SEO where like I've spent my career? I wouldn't say it's much different. There is like ethical guidelines that you kind of have to follow, right? So like when you're writing content, you know, some markets are a little bit more stringent than other markets on like, you know, ethics. Because if you do something incorrect, you could possibly get a bar grievance, right? Um, so what I mean by that is like, you know, saying like, we will win your case, right? You can't really say we will, you can say we may win, right? You can't say that we're the best lawyers in Georgia, you know, like stuff like that. If the state bar saw that, you probably would get um, some kind of a bar grievance and you'd have to like fix it, right? So there's a lot of rules in place that it would probably not uh, affect a lot of other, other industries. It's very competitive, let's say, um, you know, because these lawyers, heck, you know, some of the lawyers that aren't competing very well from an SEO perspective are, you know, leveraging pay-per-click to drive traffic, right? And so, in some cases, you know, these lawyers are spending three to $500 per click, you know, and when you think, why would they be spending three to $500 per click? Well, you look at like, well, what is the ROI, you know, of, of it, right? And so one case could be worth as little as $3,500 to a lawyer, but another click that comes in could be worth like $2.5 million, right, to a lawyer, you know, so that's that. And then the other thing is, um, you know, there's, there's some lawyers, right, that just have uh, so much budget that they're just spending so much money that they're not necessarily worried about like, what is the average cost per lead? And what is the average cost per signed case? They just want all the volume, right? And so if you have people like that in a market and you're just trying to kind of enter a market, you know, with a $5,000 budget, like it makes it very hard to kind of compete. 
I want to double click on a couple of these things. And actually, that was one of my next questions for the legal space. Like, do lawyers like are they the ones that actually need to be like writing this content, given like these topic areas are fairly regulated or can like non lawyers write content on a law firm's website? Yeah, that's a good question. That's a misconception is, you know, even lawyers don't even realize it. You know, lawyers sometimes feel like they're writing to other lawyers, you know, and say they want to use a lot of the legalese and these big words and stuff like that. But, you know, that's not who their audience is. Um, You know, their audience are, are people that, you know, were involved in a car accident. They're sitting home with a broken leg. They don't know how they're going to pay their medical bills. They don't know how they're going to be able to get their car fixed. And they're just kind of sitting there, you know, watching maybe like a daytime television show, Price is Right, you know, and next thing you know, like these lawyer commercials come on, right? And there's a reason for that is because they're targeting those people that are home from work, right? And so uh, that's their audience, right? So their audience, you know, really are people that, you know, might have like an eighth grade to 12th grade education. And so when you kind of understand who your audience is, you don't want a lawyer writing to these people. You know, you want somebody that's good at kind of writing sales copy, persuasive copy, you know, stuff that, uh, you know, gets into the psyche of the person that's sitting there and understanding their pain points. Were you involved in a car accident? Do you not know how you're going to be able to pay your medical bills? Are you afraid that, you know, you're not going to be able to get your car out of the uh, impound shop? You know, all that stuff, right? So anyway, we do have lawyers that kind of review our content just to make sure that we're not saying anything that's going to get anybody disbarred. Uh, but we have non-lawyers that write a lot of our content. So from like a competition standpoint, like most of the lawyers that like you've worked with in your career, are they operating at like a very local level or are lawyers actually like implementing SEO strategies on a national level too? Most lawyers operate within like a DMA. So like Atlanta would be like a big DMA, but you know, but then they might cover a lot of the smaller cities surrounding that DMA, you know, and that's typically how it works. And and it's just because they're trying to build a brand, right? You know, most of these lawyers that are kind of, um, you know, that have advertising budgets and stuff like that, it's really hard to build a brand nationally. Now, there are a couple firms that are doing a good job of that. There's one called Morgan & Morgan, right? You probably see commercials for them. They're like a national firm, but that's an outlier for sure. That's not common. Um, most lawyers are really kind of operating within their DMA. They're putting billboards up. They're doing radio commercials in their market. And then sometimes they might expand into like a another DMA. So like if you have somebody that's like advertising in LA and they're having a lot of success, maybe they build an office in Vegas, maybe they build an office in Phoenix, right? But I think eventually the goal will be that a lot of these law firms are trying to expand into, uh, into you know, a national powerhouse, I guess. From a keyword standpoint, do most people just search for like DUI lawyer or do they get like more long tail in their search? That's another misconception. A lot of times like lawyers are so like enamored with making sure that they rank on Google for like car accident lawyer, right? In Atlanta or wherever, you know, truth be told, that's not like where, uh, I mean, granted, that's a transactional phrase, right? So if somebody's doing a search for car accident lawyer, they probably need a car accident lawyer and it's probably going to convert, right? So, you know, we do put a lot of emphasis on writing that content. But then there's other things too, like how to get a copy of your police report. Right. Stuff like that, where you're kind of like capturing people at different uh, parts of the funnel, um, which, 
you know, might be uh, a little bit higher in the funnel or a little bit lower in the funnel. That's really where a lot of the search volume comes in is like through all these FAQs that you write. And this might be a stupid question, but for that law firm in Atlanta, like if they write like a piece of content about how to obtain a police report, I'm guessing that that piece of content that they've created is like specific to that individual city or cities that they operate in. Would that be right? It is. So like, yeah. So like when we write the content, you will basically say, you know, how to get a copy of a police report in Georgia, right? Um, or in Atlanta. Um, so when you op when you write the content, you are trying to optimize it for that particular city. But that's not always the case. Sometimes you just might write an FAQ that, you know, you would think would be competing nationally. But Google's smart enough to realize that it's just an FAQ. Like how many points is a DUI, right? On my, on my record, right? You know, sure, that could rank nationally, right? But that doesn't make any sense if that's showing up in Texas when somebody in California is doing the search, right? So that's why it's important just to kind of make sure that you're writing content and you're, you know, addressing the solution uh, for somebody in a local market. And Google gets it right. <laughs> you know, they know how to get that right. Yeah, I kind of assumed that Google is smart enough to like know the location of the searcher and then serve like that piece of FAQ content that you've described in like that specific specific geo or region. Does that just make like keyword tracking like kind of impossible? Like if you're using like a, an off the shelf keyword tracking tool that might only have like nationalized data? Yeah, I mean, if you're using like a one that like, sure, that could be hard. Um, but a lot of the, you know, the keyword tracking tools will allow you to put a location in so that you can kind of track that. We were using a tool called GetStat for a while, um, and we just transitioned over to Ahrefs now. For the average law firm that you work with, like how many pieces of content do they create? Are there like hundreds of these long tail keywords, thousands, or is it much smaller than that? When we put together like our proposals, there's a lot of SEO agencies that say, hey, you know, we'll be able to like rank for 50 keywords or 100, you know, we don't really like do that, you know, hopefully we just, we live in a world of abundance mindset and like we wanna try to rank for as many keywords as we can. Some pages, you know, you might publish one page of content that will rank for 2,700 keywords, you know what I mean? Like, so as far as like the content that we, uh, that we put out, some clients will do 10 pages of content per month. We've had clients that did 400 pages of content per month, right? So completely uh, on a different scale. Um, but, you know, that's, that's how you win the game of Google is just kind of putting out good content. And the more content that you put out, the more of a subject matter expert that you appear to be in the eyes of Google. Um, and, you know, the more keywords that you rank for, the more traffic that you get, the more revenue that you make. Really. And we've talked a lot about content, like how important are backlinks in all of this when it comes to uh, ranking in the legal space? Crucial. You know, I think 65, 70% of is still backlinks, you know, that's what makes pages uh, more authoritative. And, you know, we do things to build backlinks for our clients, you know, things like guest blog posts and citations and foundational links and, uh, you know, you name it, we do digital PR. But then there's a lot of things that our clients can also do to build backlinks. And that's just like doing real things that businesses do. You know, HR is a link building strategy, right? Go publish a, a job position on Indeed, publish it on Monster. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of things that people don't really look at as link building that are, and you know, Google leverages all of that within the algorithm, so. I would imagine this is like a part of the internet where like people are still buying a lot of backlinks. Is that something that's like pretty 
popular or common practice among agencies in this space? It is, you know, guest blog posts, there always will be a need for that. Um, you know, but Google is probably at a point where they're able to kind of detect relevancy of, of a particular website and how many links are going out about car insurance and everything else, right? Fitness. And then all of a sudden there's a post about like a DUI lawyer, you know what I mean? Like there are definitely some strategic ways to kind of build backlinks that still work. Um, and I think we're at a point now where you're not seeing a lot of websites getting penalized, you know, because of bad backlinks. Uh, if anything, Google is just kind of discounting the weight of them. Yeah, we had a recent guest on, uh, Ann Smarty, uh, who you might remember of like their guest post linking network. Her network got shut down. I remember. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Back in 2014, which she, she talked about on the podcast and, um, she, she made the same point that she hasn't seen like a manual link penalty in like a couple of years. Like it seems like that Google has just gotten very good at just deciding what it wants to ignore. But whenever I'm looking at like a website where like a guest post opportunity might exist, it feels like like the DUI lawyers and online casinos just like stick out as like red flags among everything else. I guess uh, my next question is on like pricing and like investment in this channel. Like how much is like the average like law firm spending when it comes to like building their SEO channel? Yeah, that's uh you know, that there's a wide range and you know, it, it really kind of comes down to who you're competing against really, you know? And so when we look at a market, if we have an opportunity to come into a new market, you know, the first thing that we look at is like, who's, who's in that market? How much content do they have indexed? What does their backlink profiles look like? What type of history do they have, right? And so that really will dictate, you know, just how competitive you need to be in that market. Um, and so if we see that a young lawyer that, you know, just graduated law school wants to come in and dominate Los Angeles personal injury, and they've got a budget of $3,000 per month, you know, we'll be realistic and say, that's not really going to make an impact uh, in Los Angeles. Um, and you should probably save that $3,000 and maybe look at doing some networking and reaching out to other lawyers and seeing if they can throw you some of their overflow and maybe take that 3000 to to you build a website and, you know, maybe you start publishing some of your own content for now, you know, because if the budget in LA is going to require you to spend 30 or $50,000 a month, right. You know, we just don't want to mismanage expectations. And that's how a lot of SEOs get bad names is they just mismanage expectations. They overpromise, underdeliver, and, you know, just kind of creates a mess for other marketers, you know, it gives us all a bad reputation. We're about halfway into this episode of the Optimized Podcast, and I just want to bring you a special note from one of our sponsors, that being Positional. If you're anything like me, you probably love internal linking, but you probably don't do enough of it. And it probably takes a ton of time to find missing internal links throughout your old pieces of content and then internally link the new pieces you create. And that's why we built internals. We'd love for you to check out our internal linking tool set at positional.com. And that was a word from our sponsors. Now back to this episode. So for like a lot of these keywords, they feel like very commoditized. Like there's probably only one way to write an article about like how to get a police report in Buckhead, Atlanta. How do you like think about differentiation or like the unique value that you might be able to provide in, in these content pieces that might be serving keywords that are very commoditized? 
And there's really not a lot that you can do. Like, you know, what really makes your Atlanta car accident lawyer page stand out more than like a hundred other firms that are writing an Atlanta car accident lawyer page? You know, I think brand is important, right? I think Google puts emphasis on brand, like how many people are searching for a brand online. So I think that's definitely part of an algorithm, right? So if somebody's doing a lot of radio and TV and billboards and people are searching for that firm by name, um, I think they get a little bit of uh, extra credit in terms of like ranking because they probably should be ranking if people are searching for their brand name, right? So that's something that plays into this. The other thing is obviously the authority of the website, you know, the site that has the strongest links uh, are, are always going to rank higher. The sites that are leveraging internal linking a lot better, right? I think that's a big strength of uh, of doing SEO is like leveraging your pages and building out silos and topical clusters. And then I'd say the third thing is really like, you know, those that are leveraging video content as well, right? Doing things to kind of improve the user experience so that people are staying on the page a little bit longer and you know, video instead of just an article that looks like a blog post about how to file a police report versus like a lawyer kind of giving you the steps on how to do it on a video. That's interesting that you mentioned video because we had a previous guest on who like swears by video. He added like videos to like 50 of his pages and then didn't add videos to like another 50 pages and saw like a really positive impact on like the pages in which he did add videos to. Uh, and I totally agree with you that like videos are great in terms of like keeping people engaged and keeping them on your page longer and sending all of that good positive signal to, to Google that your page might be a good one. So would you say that like video is like one of the most important things uh, in terms of differentiation right now? hundred percent, you know, not only for the SEO benefit, right? Because you, you do get those user signals, people stay on the page, but you know, just in general, like, you know, people like to do business with those that they like and trust. Right. And so it's, it's a, it's more of a conversion tactic as well. Right. So somebody comes to a page, you know, and it's just a 2000 word article about like, whatever, like they're probably gonna be like, okay, this is interesting. And they might click back. If somebody comes to the next page and there's like a video of a lawyer there, that's, you know, that says I've tried like a hundred cases just like this, like, you don't have to like worry about like losing sleep. Like this is not the end of the world. Like we're going to be able to help you give my firm a call today and we'll do a no obligation phone call. I'm happy to jump on a call with you. And, you know, you know what I mean? Like I'm going to feel more comfortable kind of picking up the phone and calling this lawyer versus like, you know, those that don't have video. Right. Um, so it adds that human connection, I guess. And by the way, you did write a book called law firm SEO, which I, kind of forgot to mention like 10 minutes ago. So for all of our listeners, we will include a link, I should say, to that book, Law Firm SEO in the show notes. And I know you've recently published a book on honest SEO, demystifying the Google algorithm to help you get more traffic and more revenue. And this is currently an Amazon bestseller in multiple categories, including SEO. The next question I want to ask is on algorithm updates. 2023 was a very volatile year in search. There were a lot of algorithm updates. It caused a lot of pain for a lot of folks that we've talked to on this podcast. Did the Algorithm updates impact like the local regional level in the legal space or not so much? I think it, you know, it affected a lot of uh, a lot of industries, you know, like the helpful content update, you know, that that definitely um, had an impact on the legal niche, you know, stuff that most people aren't even paying attention to, like um, 
like your reputation, right? You know, you might have amazing SEO and your content is perfect and you've got videos, you know, but when Google looks at your better business reviews and your Google reviews, and they look at like um, your glass door of what your employees are saying about what it's like to work at your company, right? Yelp scores, right? Stuff like that. Um, you know, that stuff that has an impact on your rankings now that a lot of people don't never really paid too much attention to. Um, and it makes a lot of sense because why does Google want to kind of promote businesses that are not really kind of giving a good experience to their customers and their employees. So we had some stuff like that, you know, where you had some some firms that, you know, had good SEO, but, you know, they just weren't paying extra close attention to their reputation. Um, and those those sites got affected. So you do see stuff like that. And, and you know, I'm I'm for that. You know, I think uh I think it's it's good that Google continues to, you know, make the playing field a little bit harder and harder and, and they're doing it for all the right reasons. So why did you write the book? What led to uh, this new book from you? Well, the law firm SEO book, I wrote that specifically to target, you know, lawyers that, to be honest, that we're just kind of getting taken advantage of, you know, there's a lot of bad actors in our industry. And, you know, usually by the time somebody comes to me, they've already been taken advantage of four times. They're really skeptical. They, you know, they don't want to part with their money just because they had bad experience. And so my goal is, you know, I don't ever really try to sell anybody anything. I'm just trying to educate people. And I think the best way to educate them is just to get them into my head for a couple hours. And so I send them a free copy of my book. Um, they read it. And if they're, if they're comfortable and moving forward, um, you know, then we, we do that. You know, I go to conferences and give out 2000 books, you know, sometimes. So that's the reason why I wrote Law Firm SEO, just because that's my niche. But then a lot of the principles that I wrote for law firm SEO, because that's such a micro niche, are applicable to, you know, anybody that wants to learn SEO. And so that was the motivation to kind of write honest SEO. And so uh, a lot of the same principles that you'll find in law firm SEO are in honest SEO, but it's just targeting a, a different audience, I guess, if you will. What are maybe like two or three of those principles that that you think are really important and, and that you cover in the book? Yeah, well... A, whether or not it makes sense to um, build an in-house team versus hiring an agency, you know, and what what part of uh, your path that you're in, like there's a whole chapter that that talks about, you know, should you build an in-house team or should you hire an agency? There's a chapter where I go through and I looked at a lot of the Fortune 1000 companies and I studied their link profiles and I put together a list of a lot of the foundational links that like a lot of these Fortune 1000 companies have that every business should have, right? So if you're looking just to kind of get started, here's the first 50 websites you should go out and, you know, build links on, you know, and set up profiles for like, these are the stuff that Coca-Cola has links for that you can also have links for, right? You know, and then there's a, there's a whole chapter about negative SEO. You know, a lot of times people don't even consider that. Um, and there's all kinds of tactics and strategies that people will try to use to, you know, damage uh, your website. And so, uh, you know, I just like to make light of that and, and make people aware that, you know, that that is something to kind of pay attention to. So I'm actually quite interested in that. It kind of reminds me of like the online casino space, which I've never been a part of, but I've heard stories like what could someone do to damage your website from like an SEO standpoint? You know, over optimizing links with, uh, you know, anchor text. So like, you know, you'll see a law firm that might get 3000 links that have the word Viagra and porn 
right? And so if you're not really monitoring that um, and your link profile isn't really strong, you know, you could uh, you could get affected by that. You know, so that's one thing. Sometimes people are kind of going in and requesting uh, some of your strong links getting removed, right? So if you got a link from the Wall Street Journal, they'll reach out to the Wall Street Journal as though they're you and ask them to remove that link. You know what I mean? So there's that stuff. Um, there's things called DDO, DDoS attacks, um, where people are just sending a large amount of traffic to a website and bringing down their servers, you know, finding uh, backdoors through WordPress to inject malware, right? So next thing you know, you've got pages on your website that are selling sunglasses and you don't know about it, right? So there's there's all kinds of uh, different things that people can do. I'll admit that happened to me once. Like somebody had like hacked into one of our WordPress sites through a plugin and then we're selling links from one of our pages. And this question is from Zachary, the uh, optimized podcast producer who you don't see, no one sees him, but he plays a big part in this podcast. And his question is, given the dynamic nature of organic search and algorithm updates over the last couple of years, is it even worth writing books about SEO these days? Or would those books just be unusable or outdated in a couple of years from now? Yeah, you know, I think like that's why when I tried to write my book, I tried to make it as green as possible so that regardless of like what happens with updates, you know, it'll still kind of be applicable. And so, uh, you know, a lot of the principles, like I said, you know, 20 years ago are still applicable today. You know, granted tools change, right? Some tools come and go. There's certain websites that had influence that have come and go. But, um, you know, I think if you want to be a thought leader in a space and you've got a lot of insights and knowledge, it certainly can help to spread that. You know, and you do that by uh, by writing books and and getting those books out there and and promoting it. Um, so, I wouldn't say that you know you shouldn't do it, but just kind of be careful about how you write your content, knowing that you know you are kind of writing to a moving target. And you've been extremely successful in building and operating agencies over your career. If you had to build an agency from scratch today, would you? I think so, because this is my second time building an agency. So I guess I, I, I've already answered that question as I, I did, because um, I built one agency and then I sold my interest. And this was in 2015. And I took a break and I played tennis like every day for like six months and I was like getting bored. And so uh, I said, screw it, I'm going to build another agency because that's kind of what I know how to do. Um, but I I took a lot of the lessons and failures that I made in the first agency and I was able to kind of bypass all of that in this one. And so that's really kind of what sets you up for success is uh, is not so much all the success that you have, but like just the lessons and, and the failures that you've made that kind of give you an advantage. So I think if I were to do it again, I would probably 100% would. And I think I would have a competitive advantage just because I've already like done it twice. <laughs> so yeah, I would probably do it again. So if I was about to start an agency, what are like one or two of those big mistakes that you would tell me to steer clear of or, or not to make? So I think, uh, you know, usually when you're starting in, in a company, it doesn't just have to be an agency. You're usually like a small company and you don't have a lot of resources, um, both in terms of financial resources and human resources. And so you could only kind of hire what you can afford. And so a lot of times you're hiring, you know, entry level people, uh, maybe right out of college and you're having to kind of train them. And like one of the critical mistakes that I see people make is where they, 
you know, like I'm going to be the CEO and you've got two other people and you're going to be, um, you know, my uh, VP of uh, operations and you're going to be my VP of marketing. Right. And these are people that are right out of college that have never really wore a VP role and, you know, and don't have the real experience to be a VP. And so as you start to grow, you know, and you have more resources, now you have this constraint because you have somebody that's really like a entry level college person that's now a VP of marketing when you really need a real VP of marketing come in. Like, what do you do? Do you have to demote them? Right. So I think that's a big mistake of uh, getting started is just kind of having an ego and wanting to make everybody sound more official than they really are. So that's one thing. Uh, and then the other thing is really kind of um, making sure that you have a culture uh, and that, you know, that you have core values and that you're following core values right from the start. Like I used to think that that, you know, when I was a small agency, I didn't really look at that, you know, um, but now we like live and die by our core values. We have Slack channels that people recognize each other based on living core values within an organization. And it really builds camaraderie and, um, and it really kind of makes it a, a great place to work. And 2023 was a pretty tough year for agencies. We've had a few guests on who have just complained largely. Is there going to be like a, an extinction event for agencies? Like it feels like we've kind of hit this break point where like a lot of them have struggled, are not now totally sure what to do. It does feel like things are better for agencies now than they were like maybe let's say nine or 10 months ago. I guess my question here, and I should ask it clearly, did we hit a point where there were like too many content marketing and SEO agencies and maybe those they were just not capable agencies? Yeah, I mean, I can only see it from my perspective. And uh, I definitely think there's a lot of, uh, of opportunities still with agencies, but I can also understand and appreciate that there's a lot of uh, entrepreneurs that started agencies just because they felt like it was a quick and easy way to make revenue and not realizing like what comes with owning an agency. And you know, now you have to hire people and you have payroll and you've got to service clients. And if you're taking shortcuts with servicing clients, you know, maybe you're not getting the results. Maybe you're not charging enough. Um, right. So there's all these different outliers uh, that come with kind of building an agency. And if you've never done it before, you kind of have to learn the, the ins and outs of building an agency. And so I think that's why a lot of agencies are failing is just because Either their reputations are getting tarnished because it's more of like a churn and burn strategy, right? And they don't really mean to do it that, but they just they just kind of set up their agency and didn't have the experience to know like what truly works and what doesn't. I was looking at a Facebook group recently and they said, you know, it was like an agency group. And the question was, how long did it take for you to make your first $10,000 per month in revenue, you know? And there were some people that were in there that was basically commenting like, you know, two years you know, nine months, you know, whatever, uh, 16 months, like that's, that's a long time, you know, two years to make your first $10,000, you know, like per month, like that seems like a long time. And so, uh, I don't know, I, I guess they just didn't have the, the right strategy to kind of like really kind of build out an agency the right way. When you think about building out the agency, I think you have a fairly large team. It's like a hundred people, isn't it? We do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When you think about hiring, like how do you hire like true A players to that team and what makes an A player? Well, for the most part, most A players aren't, 
on the market looking for a job, <laughs> you know, because if they're an A player, you know, they're probably like doing A player things. And, you know, you know, it's like Aaron Judge, right? You know what I mean? Like he's just not a free, you know, it's not on the market. You're going to have to go to the Yankees and try to pick him up and pay a lot of money to get him up to come over. Right. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is just kind of know my strengths and my weaknesses. And I am not a, an HR person. I don't have an HR background. And so, uh, you know, we brought in uh, an HR team. We've got a director of people success. That's her role. And her whole role is making sure that our people are successful. Um, she fights for our team. She gets them better benefits. We offer, you know, 401k with a match, right? So she adds all these elements that, you know, I wouldn't really think about as an entrepreneur and it's stuff. It's a recruiting tactic, right? Like we pay for our employees, their benefits. We also pay for 75% of their whole family. So like our benefits are now almost as good as like government benefits. Um, and then where I come in is the company is really built around my personal brand. And so I try to publish a lot of videos and, and content that talks about like our agency and who we are and what we do and how our leadership works. And so a lot of the content that you'll see me post on Instagram or LinkedIn that's also helps with recruiting too, right? You know, because if people see that, they're like, oh, I'd love to work for that guy someday. Well, we will definitely include a link to your LinkedIn and Twitter in the, in the show notes and, and everyone will hopefully go and follow you. And I just have one more question before we get to the rapid fire round. And that is like, what is the number one reason a client would fire an agency? Like you mentioned that like clients will sometimes go through four agencies before they get to you. Like, why are they firing those other agencies? Yeah, I think uh, the the main reason why an agency would get fired is there's two reasons. A, they mismanage expectations right from the start, right? So yeah, we're going to get your ranking for everything and you're going to be so successful, right? You know, just to basically get them to say yes. And the second reason is not properly educating the client on what it is that you are doing for them, right? Because SEO is such a nebulous kind of industry like most people don't understand like what link building is, what is guest blog posts, what is page speed, like all of that stuff, right? And so you can be doing all that stuff for the client, but if you're not educating them on what you're doing, the perception is that you're not really doing anything for them, right? And so it's not working. I've been paying $5,000 a month for three months and I'm not getting any cases, what the heck? Well, if you would have managed expectations and said, hey, listen, you're probably not gonna see cases till about nine months at a $5,000 per month budget, and by the way, this is everything that we're doing. Now you're building a true relationship with the with the client and they'll stay around a lot longer. Yeah. And we see that in our business too. Like we sell software to content marketing and SEO teams. And a lot of our customers tend to be like early stage startups. And they'll reach out to me in like three to four months and say like, like why isn't this working yet? And like, I'll, And I mentioned to them at the very beginning that like, you know, this is like a long-term channel. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint, mm -hmm. but it's, it must just be that for like certain companies, like they can't conceptualize like search being like a one to two year initiative. It's the same thing as the stock market. You know what I mean? Like you don't, you don't just invest in three months and you retire. You know what I mean? Like that's not how the stock market works. Right. So, well, this has been so much fun, Jason. I've learned a lot. And if it's okay with you, I just have a few rapid fire questions I'd love to ask. Yeah, this is great. Thank you. So human versus AI generated content. Do you have an opinion or a perspective here? Human content for stuff that uh, I think is more competitive, you know, stuff that has 
high search volume, high competition. However, you can use AI content uh, for stuff that would be uh, low competition, low search volume, and you can probably get away with it. Have you ever had to fire a client? 100%, yeah. We fired, I don't know, maybe like three clients during my time owning agencies. Mostly it was because of the way that they were treating uh, our staff. If a client doesn't fit within our core values, and one of our core values is have fun, don't be a jerk. And so if, if some of our clients are actually being a, a jerk to our staff, like we'll you know disengage the relationship. What's the biggest SEO budget you've seen on a monthly basis for a law firm? Uh, we've had lawyers that have paid $200,000 plus per month for just SEO. That's amazing. <laughs> and uh, and you and the agency and 2024 ahead, like, do you have like a big goal that you're trying to achieve or, or some milestone you want to hit this year? Yeah, for us, uh, you know, we're trying to kind of grow to the tune of about 25% this year in terms of top line revenue, but we're also trying to get our margin closer to about 23 to 25% too. Well, this has been such a fun episode, Jason. Thanks for coming on the Optimize podcast. And we'll include links to your social profiles as well as the, the few books that we've mentioned in the show notes. But is there anything else you'd like to say to our listeners? No, I just appreciate you uh, taking the time uh, to interview me. I appreciate uh, you know Zach's uh, assistance and kind of uh, all the preparation that you guys did for this call. So thank you. And to the listeners that invested an hour or so just kind of listening to this, I appreciate it. Hope you got value and uh, hope to connect on social media. This week's episode of the Optimize podcast is brought to you by Positional. You probably know by now that my name is Nate and I'm one of the co-founders of Positional. And we've built what I think is a pretty awesome tool set for content marketing and SEO teams. We've got a few features you'd expect like tools for keyword research and keyword tracking, but we've also got a few tools that you've maybe never seen before. For example, internals for internal linking and content analytics, which is kind of like a heat mapping tool, but for a content team, it helps give you insight into where in your pages you might wanna come back and improve. We've got about eight tools and we'd love for you to check them all out at positional.com.